0: Let's turn, if you will, to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. As we begin now, a a new series of studies in the Gospel of John, moving right along chapter by chapter. And uh, we've, we've been actually weeks, if not months, In a particular uh, time frame in the gospel here, uh, what's interesting is we've been in it months, uh, we're dealing with just a week's time. And then as we entered into chapter 13 many weeks ago, we were entering into a period of hours. The Passover Supper was beginning there at chapter 13. And Jesus had prepared everything for his disciples. But what he prepared more than just the elements of, of the Passover supper was the, were, were the things that he was saying to his disciples. The things that he, te- that he was teaching his disciples about what was to happen and what was to come. Preparing them for the work that they would carry on after Jesus would be taken to die, uh, be taken to be killed, actually, on the cross, and, of course, to die and then to be buried, and then three days later to rise again from the dead, as, as we mentioned often. He told them this was, was, was going to happen, but they were still kind of in that denial phase, you know. And waiting to see what all this meant. And he washed the feet of his disciples. And he said that uh, this is what they were supposed to do. The servant wasn't greater than his master. And if the master was, to, was doing this, then they should do this as well. To wash the feet of, of their brethren. Not just the feet washing, but the way that we are to give of ourselves to one another. And he spoke about his love to them. And he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he emphasized that much in this, in this discourse of Jesus in chapters 13 and 14. It is within this particular time that Jesus would mention the sixth I am statement when he said in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he goes on to tell them that they would do greater things, greater works. In the fact that they would continue to carry on the message of the gospel. And the greater work was in presenting the gospel to people so that the Lord would transform their very lives. That's the greater miracle. What God does to the hearts of people. He would promise them the spirit of the Lord to be upon them. I go away, but I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you another comforter I've been your comforter so far, but now I'm going to send you the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be with you. And because I live, you shall live also. So many comforting and encouraging things that Jesus said to his disciples. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. These are all the things that Jesus was saying to them in preparation for the next few hours. The next few hours, Jesus would be going to the cross. So he says at the end of chapter 14, Arise, let us, let us go hence. And so now they leave. And so the next few words that we see in chapter 15 are not really said inside this Room, or, as some people believe, in an upper room there in Jerusalem. But in fact, he's saying this to them on the move, if you will. And this is what he said. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Without me you can do nothing. So now we have arrived at the seventh I am statement of Jesus in the Gospel of John. That very statement, the I am statement, makes it very clear that Jesus declared his deity that he was God. It declared his deity throughout his earthly ministry, countering the many theologians that have written down through the ages and much more in modern times that Jesus never said that he was God. But in declaring, I am, which is in the Greek the phrase Ego eimi." he was proclaiming himself with the very same designation as the voice of God speaking to Moses from the burning bush. Now, how do we know that it was the very same designation? Well, let's first of all read Exodus chapter 3. And by the way, this is a review now of all of the seven statements of, 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 of Jesus, of his I Am statements, I should say. So it's important for us to realize that, and if you haven't been with us any amount of time where we've done most of those, then you get caught up here on that. But in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, now, you have to understand, Moses has been out there watching the sheep of his father-in-law. He's left Egypt. And now, as he's out in the wilderness of Sinai, he sees a burning bush. And he finds it to be very uh, distinct in the fact that it was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And it drew his attention and brought him to that place where he walked to the burning bush and heard a voice that said to him, take off your shoes. The ground upon which you walk is holy. And Of course, the voice was the voice of God. He begins this this conversation with with the Lord, if you will. The Lord with him. I think it was more the Lord with him. to Let him know that he was now the one that the Lord wanted to send back into Egypt to deliver his people from the slavery of, of the Pharaoh. And eventually in verse 13, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt they say unto the children of Israel, uh, uh, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am who has sent me unto you. I am. That is his name. And God said moreover unto Moses, uh, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. Now in this particular case, a memorial is a remembrance. This is something that you are to remember for all generations. This is my name. I am that I am. Now, when you take this passage here and find it in something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when you read this particular passage in the Septuagint in Greek, you realize that when God says to Moses, I am that I am, the translation is ego, a me. Ego. That is my name. So Jesus is not just haphazardly using this term when he says that he is the I Am. He is clearly making the designation that he is the I Am. Now later on, from this time in Exodus, David the shepherd king, And the psalmist would declare who his Lord would be in Psalm 110, verse 1. I want you to notice the wording here. And also, if you will, how actually that first Lord there should be all caps, usually in in, in the text. And the second is the way it's, it's supposed to be there. But here the Lord, Septuagint, Egoemi, I am, said unto my Lord, and here it is Adonai. Both terms used of God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Both terms. The Lord said unto my Lord. Is he talking to himself? No. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Who sits at the right hand of the Father? Jesus, using the very same terms that are applied to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only one true God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Peter, the apostle, would then affirm David's declaration when he preaches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem immediately after the Pentecost experience in the upper room where the 120 received the the moving of the Holy Spirit, the the great wind that blew through that room, and and, and the tongues of fire that landed upon the 120 that day, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon uh, upon those 120. And all of this, people were wondering, what is going on up there? What is happening? And uh, Peter now goes out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to let them know. To cut it short, if you look at verse 32 of Acts chapter 2, it says, This Jesus has God raised up. Because he points back to Jesus Christ as the reason that all of these things were happening. He says, This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we, are, we all are witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, again, at the right hand of the Father, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, Which, of course, Jesus has already given not only to his disciples, but even to us. He has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. A promise that he even said was in the book of Joel, the prophet Joel, that talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens. He says, it's not David that has ascended into the heavens. But he saith himself, and notice, the Lord said unto my Lord, and it's still not done right over there, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified both Lord and Christ. And remember that God will not share his titles or his glory with anyone else. But he has made Jesus Lord and Christ, which is Lord and Messiah, Lord and the Anointed One. And and there's no question that the Messiah himself is the Lord. So compare these passages then. With the declarations made by the Lord God himself in Isaiah 42, verse 8, for example. Where God himself says, I am the Lord. I am ego a me. I am that I am. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. And some would say, well, see there, he's not going to give his name and his glory to anyone else. But you have to stop and think. What has come before? Seven verses. And those seven verses point to the Messiah. You can read them yourselves. It is all about God's servant. And who is God's servant on this earth? Voluntarily, Jesus came to this earth, took upon himself flesh to come and save us. So you think, You you see that, and so what he is saying here, in in essence, in chapter 42, verse 8 of Isaiah, is, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory that belongs to me and my Son, my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. To make it even more clear, in Isaiah 43, the next chapter, verses 10 through 13, He says, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. That is, grammatically, he's connecting himself with his son, his servant. And he says, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Together, you are my witnesses. That you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed. And again, the son is with him. Before me, there was no God formed. Paul, in the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Colossians chapter 1, tells us that Jesus is the creator, very clearly, specifically. And he says, Neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And beside me, there is no Savior. So, right there, to, together, the Savior and the Father. And beside them, there is no Savior, no other Savior. I have declared and have saved and I have showed. When there was no strange God among you, therefore you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before that the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work and who shall let it, which means who shall prevent it? Who shall prevent what I do? And who is going to prevent what he's going to do through his only begotten son? So with all of those things in mind, we get a better picture then of the seven I am statements declaring the Lord Jesus as deity. I don't know if you remember a good long couple of years ago when we started the book of John. I said, I'll come and explain this when we finally get to the end. Well, here's where we are. I'm giving the explanation now. So if you've been patient with me for two years, praise the Lord. You get a gold star today. But we do get a better picture of the seven I am statements declaring the Lord Jesus as deity. John 6:35, Jesus said unto them, "I am, egoe me, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst." If there was a problem between the Father and the Son and and He would say, Son, I'd give my glory to no one. Then would Jesus be able to say, I am the bread of life. He who cometh to me. No, not at all. He is who He is. He is not only the Son of God, He is God the Son. That is why He has the, the, the confidence to say what He says. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Only God can be that nourishment, that provision for his people who come to him. In John 8 verse 12, it says, And Jesus spake again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I am the light of the world. If Jesus does not come to this world, this world would remain in the darkness the darkness that was begun because of the sin that was introduced in the garden. And eventually would, would plague every human, every person that has lived on this earth. Because all of us were born in sin. He is the light of the world. And think about this. You go all the way back to, Gen, uh, to John chapter 1. And what did we learn of Jesus from the very beginning of that chapter? In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later on it said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the Word, made flesh. The Word of God. The Logos of God. The Light of God. By the way, if you read those First few uh, verses of chapter 1, you realize that there is that focus upon light and life. Think about the creation itself. What was the first thing created? Light. Light be and light was. For there to be everything else. And he said, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then in John chapter 10, comes the third I am statement of Jesus. When he says in verses seven through nine, then said Jesus unto them again, verily, verily I say unto you, (coughs) excuse me, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. You'll be taken care of because you will be able to enter into the Father's sheepfold. The sheepfold belongs to the Father. But I am the door, I am the access. There was another door. We talked about that a long time ago. It was the door to the ark of Noah. And what we learned about that particular door was that the door had remained open until all of the animals that Noah had collected to bring into the ark were, were actually brought. The door remained open. But only the family of Noah, only eight people would be on that door. And there was no way for that door to be closed by Noah and his family. God was the one that closed it. The access was given, but no one came up except those that God put on. The door was closed by God. May I say to you that the door is still open. Still today. To come into Christ. To come into salvation. To find the pasture. The the nourishment. the, the, The provision that we need. From God. It's still open. Because Jesus. Is still the door. He's still the only way. And we'll get to that in a moment. The fourth. I am statement, it was just a few verses later, actually, verse 11 of John 10, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. And in those two verses, of course, one, one I am statement, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He gives his life for the sheep. Anybody else is just a hireling. Troubles come and, you know, if the trouble's too much, the hireling runs. But the good shepherd stays. The good shepherd dies for his sheep. And Jesus would do that. There's one other thing. I'm the good shepherd and know my sheep. There's knowledge. And am known of mine. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Do you know him? See, that's the question. Do you know him? Who's whistling? Somebody whistling? Interesting. Wow. I've had applause, I've had blues. Never had whistles. Interesting. That was. But if it happens again, I'll just throw something at you. And then cometh the fifth I am statement. Verse 25 of John chapter 11. When Jesus arrives in Bethany, because he's been summoned by Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus was sick, but by the time that Jesus gets there, And, of course, Jesus Jesus planned it that way, but by the time he gets there, he's dead four days. But to assure the sisters of Lazarus, he made this great, great I am statement. He said in verse 25 of John 11, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Yet shall he live. And then we know what happens. Jesus spoke the name of Lazarus after he had the men move the stone away from his grave. and He said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth alive. Jesus definitely shows that he's God. The power of God could not be on anyone else, but on God himself. And Jesus was declaring his deity. Not only the resurrection, the power to raise life, but the power to give life. So he's the resurrection and the life. And then in John 14, verse 6, the sixth statement, as we said earlier, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So before we begin our look then at John chapter 15, let's consider that these statements clearly show us that Jesus is in fact and indeed everything that we need. If God is the I am, and in that statement, and some have said that literally means I am the becoming one, I am everything that you need, I am everything that you uh, need for life and, and, and godliness, I'm everything, I am. If that is the case, then Jesus is everything that we need by making those declarations. He is saying, I am God. As the great and eternal I am. Jesus is our spiritual food and nourishment. I am the bread of life. As the great and eternal I am. He is the very light by which we can see spiritually. And the word that we can, by, by which we can see. Psalm 119, verse 105, 105. It says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Without Jesus, we don't have any light whatsoever. As the great eternal I am, Jesus is the very access into the sheepfold. The very way to become a child of God, a sheep that belongs to the good shepherd. And he is the good shepherd then as well to lead us. He is the power over death and the grave to give us eternal life. He is the only way in truth and in life to the Father. The only way. And Now we see that He is the vine by which we who are attached to Him as branches are able to grow and to be fruitful. Is it any wonder that Peter, again, would write something in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, when he says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things, notice, that pertain unto life and godliness. In Christ he has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory. And virtue. So it's very clear then. Without Jesus we have nothing. And what is the one statement he makes for us. In verse 5 of this text. At the very end he says. For without me you can do nothing. So now Jesus. Takes his disciples. From the solitude of the Passover supper room. Toward the garden of Gethsemane. And the agony that lies ahead. And it is quite possible that the Lord spoke the words of this passage as they went by the temple. Even though the gospels don't really trace the steps of Jesus from that Passover supper room to the garden. It is also a possibility that they went through the temple gates since they were left open all night during the Passover season so that whoever wanted to come and pray during that time could do so at any time. And remember, it was a very religious holiday, the most important religious holiday for them, to be there in Jerusalem, to have access to a place where they could pray. So the gates would have been open. And on those gates were carved representations of clustered grapes and grapevines, as we've learned, of course, through the historical records of people like Josephus and others. But on those gates were carved representations of clustered grapes and grapevines, which is, by the way, one of the symbols of the nation of Israel. It is also possible, by the way, that they passed by vineyards on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. The land then is so different than it is today. There is a Kidron Valley there, but today it's, it's got a road, and mostly buses go through there. But in Jesus' time, the land was quite open, and usually in a valley like that, there would, have, there would have been vineyards and all kinds of other things growing along the way. So it's quite possible then that they had the vineyards there for Jesus to use in giving this particular statement as they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Either way, this prompted the Lord to make this statement to his disciples. He said, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And literally, and true to the Greek text, Jesus said, I am the vine, the true. I am the vine, the true. Now, it may not seem a great difference to you, but it it would have been very clear to the disciples, even in the Hebrew, if Jesus said it, in Hebrew or Aramaic, either way. It would have all been the same thing. I am the vine, the true. And and when it is put in that particular uh, frame, the emphasis then is on the word true. The emphasis is on the word true. Because you see, Israel, was the Lord's vine. Israel had been given that designation as the Lord God's vine. Take, for example, Psalm 80, verses 8 through 10. Psalm 88 through 10 says, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Well, we know who came out of Egypt. The children of Israel, as a nation, brought out of Egypt. And notice, if you will, the, the, you know, the, uh, the progression here. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Cast out of the land to which they were taken. Thou preparedst room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. They entered into the land. There were people that they had to deal with. There were those that God used to judge <laughs> These other heathen nations around them. But nonetheless, we see a a picture of what God was doing. He takes a vine out of Egypt and he plants it in the land and it fills the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. And this particular psalm was very reminiscent of of another song. It was Isaiah's song. A song that we find in Isaiah chapter 5. And it says in verses 1 and 2, and you might want to read this, uh, all of it later on, but I just want to look, uh, have you see what it says here. And just in two verses we see uh, a, a, a dramatic change. It says, now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof. Sound familiar? Sound just like Psalm 80. You know? He says he goes and he take, casts out the, you know, the, the heathen, whatever. He fenced it, he gathered out the stones thereof, planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth Grapes. Grapes of value, grapes that have, you know, fruit and and sweetness and delectability, you know. I mean, just this is what was the aim of, of this vine to be in this land. But notice, he looked at it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Wild grapes, which is not a sweet grape. And it's not a big grape, and it's not a juicy grape, and it's not a delectable grape. It's just a wild grape. It grows on the ground. And what's interesting about growing grapes in Israel, really any, any place because of the type of vine or, or the, the kind of thing the vine is, is that most of the time the weight of the, of, of the fruit brings the vines down to the ground. So a good husbandman, a good farmer, a good uh, keeper of the land excuse me, usually goes and lifts up those, those, we're going to talk about this later a little bit more in detail, but he goes and he lifts up these these branches and and sets things under them so that they don't sit on the ground, you see. So they can continue growing to be fruitful. So if they're on the ground, they're not that, uh, they're they're really going to not grow well. They become wild. So keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that particular illustration. But when you do a very careful study of the symbols which Israel is identified, with which Israel is identified, there are three trees that symbolize the nation of Israel in the scriptures. The vine, as we just mentioned, the fig, or the fig tree, and the olive, or the olive tree. Now, very simply, and not going into the great detail right now, and again, we can do that later, but the vine itself, simply, the vine represents Israel from its planting in the promised land, as we've learned, until the nation rejected the Messiah. It is considered then the vine until. The rejection of Christ. The fig tree then represents Israel between the time of Christ's rejection by Israel and the time of his return, which will be after the tribulation. And the olive tree will represent Israel as she will be in a coming day when the Lord sets up his kingdom on earth. We we could do that study later if you'd like. But in Hebrew scripture typology, Israel was a vine, a tree good for nothing except bearing fruit. Now think about it. And there's scripture actually to substantiate this thought. That the vine is a tree that is good for nothing except for bearing fruit. You can't take the wood from this vine and build anything with it. You can't even make good nails out of it. There's a special there's special trees that have you know the hardness of of, of of the wood of that tree is strong enough that they actually made nails uh, out of out of out of wood that they would use you know the carpenters would. Use. But they'd look at the vine uh, you know the the the, the vine uh, you know the grapevine and they look at it and say well we can't use anything here it's only. It has only one purpose, to to grow grapes, to bear fruit. That's its purpose. And the scripture attests to that. And nature attests to that. Its long trailing branches, as I mentioned earlier, are a fitting symbol of its dependence. It is dependent upon God. As a vine, it was dependent upon God for that fruit. In contrast which it it mentions, by the way, in in, in Psalm 80. But in contrast, the majestic cedar, such as the cedars of Lebanon, a symbol of what is best among the Gentile nations, because that's what the cedars represented. But the cedar can strike its roots down and rear its mighty head in, in independence anywhere. But not Israel. Israel has to cling to God. Israel has to cling to God to be what it is called to be. And when it fails to do so, as we see time and time again in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, when it fails to do so, it is bound to fall and to be trampled. Now, not long before the Passover Supper, the Lord told his challenging and thought provoking parable of the vineyard and the evil husbandmen who were now plotting the murder of the divine owner's son. You can read it all in Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. But Jesus applied this parable to the nation of Israel and especially to its leaders. When he said this, and he's speaking to the leaders, by the way. And he said this in verse 42 of Matthew 21. Jesus saith unto them. And I I tell you, I want want to laugh here. I really do. It's not funny, but I want to laugh here. Because Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? Now he's speaking to the religious leaders of the Jewish people. The religious leaders of Israel the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes? Did you never read in the Scriptures? In, in effect, what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you, you don't even know the Word that you should know because you've never read it. See, how how do you read the Scriptures if you don't read to understand? And if you don't read to with prayer behind it to understand? How can you understand? Time and again, we say, listen, when you study the word of God, pray. Pray for God to grant you the wisdom. Pray as we're studying the word of God even today. Pray as God. This, you know, this is the wisdom that we need. But we all need it. Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Did you not ever read this? Did you not know how to apply this? Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. What nation? Are we talking about a nation like just a, any nation that has, has a name as a nation? Or are we talking about a different kind of nation? Do you know that when the church was, was raised up, it was raised up to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the nation that Jesus is talking about. A nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone, speaking of the stone which the builders rejected, shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And notice verse 45 and 46. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. He was. That's about the only right thing they ever did. They perceived, oh, he's talking about us. You know? Ye Willikers, he's talking about us. But when they sought to lay hands on him, by the way, they didn't want to lay hands on him to pray for him. Well, lay hands on him to kill him. That's how far from the scriptures they were. They didn't even recognize their own Messiah. When they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude. Because they took him for a prophet. All right, so now, against this backdrop, against this backdrop, that we have to interpret this I am statement of Jesus. It's against this backdrop that we have to interpret this I am statement of Jesus. Israel was God's vine. He had taken the nation from Egypt, carried it across the sands of the wilderness of Sinai, planted it in the promised land, hedged it round about, entrusted it to a number of divinely appointed leaders, the husbandmen, to whom he sent servants, he sent prophets, he sent priests, he sent princes, kings, but some of these servants were mistreated, Others were murdered. We've read about the prophets that were killed. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Last of all, who did he send? He sent his only begotten son. Just as in the parable where the divine owner, where the owner of this vineyard sent his son. They'll listen to him. He's my son. And now these husbandmen were doing exactly what the parable said. They were preparing to murder him. To kill him. And with that in mind, Jesus said, I'm the true vine. And my father is the husband. In essence, through this passage, Jesus was saying to his disciples and to his followers, and bear with me and listen to me very carefully because I'm going to kind of wrap all of this up here very quickly. He said to them, to his disciples and to us, he said, you are the ones to whom this vineyard is given, even more. You are now the vineyard itself. The true vineyard of God. You're the ones to bear fruit now. And think of it. The nation of Israel failed. It did not bring forth the fruit that God was desiring. And so the privilege is given to the church. That it might become God's vineyard and bring forth fruit unto him. But let me, let me place a caveat here. Let me give you fair warning. That does not take away our responsibility as individuals in the body of Christ to live our lives in righteousness and in godliness and in holiness. The Lord, you see, is now overseeing the vineyard directly. Not that He hadn't before. But he was showing us what happens when we turn our eyes away from the one who has given us life and the one who has given us the purpose and the plans for which he wants to perform in and through us. He took the authority that had been given to the priesthood and to the religious leaders. So in effect, the father is now the husband. But for this present age, the Lord's purposes are centered in the church, the body of Christ. But once again, do not think that the Lord is done with the nation of Israel. Do not think for even one moment that God is done with the nation of Israel. In fact, he is far from done with his people, the people that he truly loves. For he did tell them, I love you with an everlasting love. Now, first of all, during this present age, Israel, as I said earlier, is the fig tree, which Jesus describes in Matthew 24, verses 32 and 33. Now listen, we know what Matthew 24 is about. Matthew 24 is Jesus telling his disciples and us what to be looking for in the last days. What to be looking for before the coming of Jesus, not only Jesus coming for His church, but also Jesus coming to set up His kingdom seven years later. So understand that. Now, this is the context then for what He says in Matthew twenty-four, thirty-two, when He says, "Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh." Now, stop there for just a moment. Stop there and think what Jesus is doing to his disciples, what he's trying to stir in their minds and in their hearts. You see a branch and and you see it's tender, it's putting forth leaves, you know something's happening, something is coming. He's talking about his people, he's talking about Israel. He says, so likewise you, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. He is talking about Israel. It cannot be talking about anything else other than Israel. And he says, learn the parable of the fig tree. You have to observe what is going on. If there is no Israel, there is no Israel to observe. And I'm here to tell you, there is an Israel to observe. There is a people, and the people are in the land again. When there was no people in that land, when it was desolate, there was no Israel but there is an Israel again and people will say to you well that Israel you know god god is done with that Israel no he's not because if he had been done with it they would not be in the land again and they didn't force themselves into the land god raised them up ezekiel 37 the valley of dry bones that which was dead has been made alive again isn't that what god's power can do so his own people now are raised up once again Are they ready? I mean, they're not ready yet. They haven't received their Messiah yet. But you know, when they see their Messiah, they will weep or they will recognize who he is. So second, the Lord will again deal with the nation of Israel during that seven-year period known as the Tribulation or Great Tribulation period, which will take place soon after the rapture of the church. And as the true vine, Jesus was the witness for his Father in the world. Jesus was to bear fruit for him. But he was going away, wasn't he? And by the way, may I ask you a question? Did Jesus bear fruit for his father while he was on earth? Very very certainly he did. How could he not? You might say, well, he only had 12. No, he had a lot more. In fact, just keep reading into the book of Acts and realize that from the 120, which is a lot more than 12, Came 3,000 the first day. And all of them Jews, by the way. Yeah, he bore a lot of fruit while he was on earth. So, as the true vine, Jesus was the witness for his father in the world. But, and he bore fruit, but he's going away. And he tells the fruit, now you're the branches on the vine. He was on his way to the garden of sorrow and then to the judgment hall, then to the cross, and then back to glory. So how should he take Israel's place in testimony and bear fruit in the world? Through his church. Let's just read verses 2 through 5. We're going to study this next time. He says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, let me, let me just, let me give you a little bit of a, of a teaser for next week, all right? This is not talking about whether, uh, this is not a, a passage about salvation, whether you can lose salvation or not. This is not about salvation. Pure and simple, we'll talk about that next time. There have been so many people that have said, oh, listen, you know, you can lose your salvation, no, no, it's not about that. But we'll make it clear as, as the Lord gives us the wisdom to do so, but that's not what it's about. Because purging, what the, the word purging here is a word that we, we use sometimes the, the translation of pruning. And those of you who have a little bit of knowledge of horticulture and all, you know, you know that with certain plants, if you want them to be more fruitful, you have to tr- trim them back, you have to uh, prune them, and then you know, the more you prune them, the better they grow and so on and so forth. So it's in in nature that that is what that is. But purging is also a word that is used is also used for cleansing. So there's a cleansing involved. Again, we're going to talk about that next week. I'm getting ahead of myself. (coughs) But notice that it is talking about cleansing because of verse 3. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So he says, Abide in me and I in you. Dwell in me, in other words. Make your abode in me and I in you. And as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Remember the branches out by itself? If you take a branch and just throw it out on the ground, not plant it, but just throw it out on the ground, it's not going to do anything. Except it abide in vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. That's a pretty good combination, I would say. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me You can do nothing. So that is where we will begin next time. But let me leave you with just a couple of thoughts. It's obvious from the Gospel of John, from the very beginning to where we are now, but it's obvious from the Gospel of John that it is imperative, imperative for us to be in Christ, in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is to be born again of the Spirit of It is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess that he has risen from the dead. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, as Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 10. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead, that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Very clear. And these are the things that we need to do to be in Christ. To be in Christ as part of that vine. That not only he is, but what we are to be. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. The branches can do nothing apart from the vine. So, I leave you with 2 Corinthians 5.17 because it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. You know, if we've come to Christ, the old things in your life are passed away. And the word passed away, you know, when we look at, at that phrase, we, we, we know we say somebody might pass away. They die, right? All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You might be a a believer in Jesus Christ for 50 years. Well, guess what? You're, You're not old. You're still new. You're still a new creation in Jesus Christ. But you have to be in Christ. So I pray that you would understand your acknowledgement of Christ, your admission of being a sinner, your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your belief in Jesus Christ himself, and your confession with your mouth and with your heart that he's risen from the dead. Do that today and get to know what it means to be in Christ. Amen?